0: Our guest for today's episode is Barend Raaf, not just an entrepreneur and a visionary, but also my trusted business partner for over a decade. Barent has been at the forefront witnessing and engaging with some of the most transformative moments in tech, from the rise of the computers to the expansive reach of the internet, and now the real breakthrough of artificial intelligence. In today's episode, we're addressing a few burning questions. What ignites Barent's inexhaustible passion for technology? How does it feel to build and steer multiple companies across different tech eras? And crucially, as AI becomes an integral part of our professional landscape, how would it redefine the very essence of our workplaces? So, buckle up and prepare to broaden your horizons as we futurize the impact of artificial intelligence in the ever changing world of work. Let's begin our odyssey with Parent. Okay, Baron. thanks for being on this podcast. Uh, it's quite a strange episode because uh, we know each other quite well. We are uh, almost business partner for 10 years already. Uh, but I'm really happy to uh, to have you on today and to uh, talk about technology, entrepreneurship, obviously are the company we've built together, the company we're now building together, uh, and all the things that are on your mind are related to, uh, to technology. Um, and I want to just kick it off immediately, um, because I know you as a very passionate person, passionate about technology. And uh, you once uh, told me that this was all instilled in you by your dad, uh, so can so, you like, tell me more about that?
1: Oh, getting personal on the first question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's oh, a really nice
0: preparation. I did like some family interviews.
1: Yeah, yeah. You thought, after <laughs> 10 years, I finally want to meet this guy who's in the office exactly, every day. Exactly. No, not a problem. Yeah, let's go back. Um, <laughs> no, it's true. Uh, my father was a um, engineer, computer engineer for the NATO, mm-hmm. working on, uh, on military planes um, and always busy with, well, not computers in the beginning, more electronics. So opening up old TVs and fixing them. And then it was my role as a kid to open them up again and destroy them again. So, um, yeah, I really grown up with, uh, with technology and... Pretty early on, I think, when we were, when I was around ten years old, we got our first computer, and that was. Uh, yeah, that was fun, to.
0: How many years was that? Uh, Thirty-seven years ago. Thirty-seven years ago, okay. So you were one of those kids in your class. Uh, that was one of the kids with the first computers.
1: Yeah, and I think it was even in a time where a lot of kids didn't know what computers were. I think he yeah. he got it also. F- via his work from Germany. It was this this big machine with a screen that could only make orange letters and digits. And if you want to connect it to another computer, it was not with a modem, but some sort of strange device where you literally had to put your old phone into to make connections. So it was a uh, different thing than, yeah, that we're using today.
0: And what could you do with it?
1: Um, I don't even know the English word. Both the cars and the (laughs)
0: <laughs> Can you translate it? small game. It's
1: yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, not, that's it. Not much in the beginning. Uh, no. and later, I learned to code a little bit and um, yeah, write little programs. But back then, if you wrote a little bit of software, and, and this computer was in a specific room, and then, I don't know why, but it was connected to the light switch. So then when your mother came in and hit the light switch, then everything you did was completely gone. No way to store it. So those were the those were the hard days.
0: So, and uh, do you th- do you believe that uh, really like also sparked your interest in technology? Yeah, young?
1: definitely, definitely. It was definitely the first spark. Um, yeah, always intrigued by technology, and I think since the maybe a little bit later, since the late nineties, um, yeah, when I did the first things on the internet, I, I really got hooked up.
0: Yeah. So, what was your first connection with the internet?
1: I lived in a very big student complex near the University of Utrecht in the center of the Netherlands, and I don't even know why, but they made high-speed internet connections there, I think already in 1995, and hooked up the computer and and was just, yeah, blown away by the connections you could make, the information you could find, yeah, everything that was out there back then.
0: Yeah, and did it also inspire you to... to, uh... You always thought this is the field I want to work in, if you look at your career?
1: No, no. I think my career was a little bit uh, random and eclectic. I think uh, we are the same when it comes to starting <laughs> our careers. So well, I sold funny. insurance policies, I sold mortgages, I sold cars, worked for a uh, internet provider. And I think from that moment on, it was really, yeah, this is it.
0: Yeah. So that was uh, your first like serious job at World Online, correct? Yeah. Yeah, this was one of the uh, bigger ISPs in the Netherlands. Yeah, so some people might know it, some people don't, but uh, maybe you can tell a little bit more about that company because I think it defines you for uh, for sure.
1: It was, I think, one of the first real fast-growing internet companies uh, in the Netherlands back then. And it was founded by an entrepreneur. She was a pretty, I think, opportunistic person, saw the opportunity and, and went for it. Uh, it grew really, really fast, um, and yeah, that was the way it went back then. 2000, 2001, one they had an IPO when the stock started to, to plummet, and that was also the end of the company. It was sold, I think, six months later.
0: Yeah, it was. I think it was the last one of the last companies um, that went public before the internet bubble burst. Yeah, right? Yeah,
1: they were in the middle of the crash completely. Yeah, and I, I think back then, like when you're when you're early in your career and it's not your own money that's at stake. It's really interesting to see it happening and to be part of yeah, that journey. What you,
0: yeah. What is it? What, what are the things you learned there?
1: I think when you're early in your career, um, the reality yeah that, that surrounds you in that stage, you think that's the reality that will always be there. So if you enter the internet industry in 98, 99, 2000, and everything is booming, and everything everyone says, like, the internet, this is the big promise. The sky is the limit. It will only go up from here. And it was a generic belief of a lot of people back then. So I had colleagues at World Online that literally took extra mortgages to buy extra stock of this of this company. And I think the big realization was, okay, something that goes up potentially can also come down. And I think that's the first time when I really experienced that. And, well, we've been doing business for 10 years. I think we also went to some some more rough stages when it comes to the economy. Uh, I think I never forgot that. And always, yeah kept in mind that the sky is not always uh, the final destination.
0: No, and did you back then? Did you think it would be the end of the internet?
1: No, Beyond- no, no. I, <laughs> I didn't think it was. No, no, I was too much. Uh, I was too much involved to think it was the yeah. was the end of the internet. But I saw that it was the end of a lot of careers in the internet industry, especially from people that were not really committed. To it so the people that joined because there was easy money to make i think they also left the industry back then and maybe that was a big uh and healthy cleanup in the end
0: what happened to the company
1: uh world online was sold to Tiscali, to an italian uh, italian internet provider or, or tel- telco actually um they rebranded it and and that was the end of the story
0: and uh what happened to all the people and the mortgages
1: so there were yeah, it was pretty strange. The, the company was bought by the Italian company. Um, a lot of people had debt to buy shares and part of that debt was repaid by this company just because they knew that yeah, if they wouldn't do it, all the staff would, uh, would would emotionally crash and leave the company. But I think a lot of people, and not so much in the Netherlands, I think way more in the U.S., really lost a lot of money in those days.
0: Also the employees, so...
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: So were you hurt in that time?
1: no no you i never was, i was i was working nerding around and and partying so no i was not nice. i was not hurt
0: it's uh it's probably a good segue into um to entrepreneurship because that journey definitely made you decide to to run your own business to start your own company um after that experience uh which Um, actually happens quite a lot, right? When people are part of something that goes up and down and they feel like the power to do that themselves, um, at least the inspiration. Um, So what inspired you to start your own business back then after that journey?
1: I think for me, it was always two things. One, this idea that you see this opportunity and you think, hey, like I'm a pretty optimistic, sometimes opportunistic person myself. So you see this opportunity and you want to change it because you really believe in it. And it's, I think it's a DNA in the DNA of any entrepreneur entrepreneur that chasing those opportunities is, it's so much fun to do. And it was also a very pragmatic thing. Uh, I have a huge authority problem, so I don't like it when people tell me what to do and when to do it and how to do it, which was the generic management style back then. So if you can't work for a boss and you have this idea you want to chase, well, off you go. Right?
0: Yeah. Well, I can definitely uh, admit that's definitely the case, that you uh, struggle with that. Um, And so back then, um, right after the burst of the internet bubble, but still having this passion for technology and also the passion to build um, um, in that space, can you take us back to that moment in time? Um, Basically, the market that you know a lot about, that you're most passionate about, completely crashes. The trust is probably lower than ever. They described describe the climate uh, to build a new venture?
1: I think there were two realities back then. So the big promise of huge IPOs and companies turning into uh, yeah billion-dollar companies overnight, that reality yep. was gone. At the same time, you had a lot of smaller companies that still wanted to use the Internet and to um, explore the potential of this Internet. So I think that part of the business never stopped. Maybe it cooled down a little bit, but it didn't stop. So I got involved with a uh, with a media company, became partner there. They already made a lot of uh, TV shows, commercials, video clips, and they wanted to start a digital yeah part for that company. So I joined as a partner, and that's what I did. And it was it was there were no huge ideas. It was just helping companies to build their first websites, first online campaigns, and yeah, innovate with them towards becoming a more yeah digital highway steered company as they called it back then
0: yeah but was the, the was the internet still the promise or was it literally the time of more um appliances of the internet already
1: it was more applying the internet in existing business models i think yeah, if you exactly. if you fast forward from then from back then i think then, then you see that some companies really it reinvented business models like amazon I think no. that was the big promise in 2000. Then we had to reality check. Then you had more traditional businesses with existing traditional business models that took the internet as an, as an extra channel to sell or to communicate with their customers. And the next leap forward was again, yeah, new companies are rising that really introduced new business models. I mean, like the Amazon, like the Facebooks, uh, we know today.
0: Yeah. And, um, and you became a partner at the media company, um, and, uh, was it, it was basically building business concepts for other companies too, right? Uh, Almost, but already building technology.
1: Yeah. Coming up with the concepts. Um, yeah, it was a pretty immature market. So you came up with the concept, with the the strategy, with the concept, and then you did the design and the engineering, and that was all done with a group of maybe 12 people.
0: Yeah. Do you see, do you see, um, I think there's quite a if you look at the current markets, we also saw a, a tech burst of a tech bubble uh, one and a half two years ago. Um, do you see similarities with uh, with the internet bubble bursting back then?
1: I think back then it was uh, more devastating for the people involved in the sense that back then people really thought it's the end. Like some people really thought this is the end. The internet, it was a big promise. It was a hype and now it's gone. I think nobody today believes that that the internet is gone. It's just that the valuations went down. And I think there's a yeah. difference there. Valuations going yeah. down versus the whole platform is going to yeah. cease to exist.
0: Yeah, and maybe we refer more to um, uh, new entrepreneurs uh, starting new companies. I mean, if you look at two years ago, there was a significant amount of, a significant, like the, in the past 10 years, so many new companies and businesses are built, especially tech businesses. Many entrepreneurs um, took the leap of faith because the market was also, it was, oh, was yeah. of trust. And I think in the last two years, we, we will probably see an issue with new founders coming to market. And almost, the que- I, I ask you this with a question, Mark, is entrepreneurship stagnating?
1: Oh, but there you see a lot of similarities. I yeah. think also in the last 10 years, a lot of entrepreneurs, like if you were 16, 10 years ago, so now 26, and you became entrepreneur in this last 10 years, then the only environment you know is the environment of limitless money, uh, yeah. businesses going up, you have a company, you do an investment round, and one year later, your company is worth three times as much just because valuations go up. Um, and there there's definitely similarity with 2001 because also those people they get a reality check they also get to face something that they thought would never that would never happen um, yeah. I think entrepreneurship will not stop I think certain people that became entrepreneurs because it was so easy I mean I mean you and me refer to them like the lifestyle entrepreneurs right people that love the lifestyle and the image that goes with being an entrepreneur I think they don't want, they won't take the step so much, but if you have this intrinsic motivation to build something and you really believe you have a great idea, then even a recession or less economical downturn won't stop you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about one of those ideas because I think it's a good, if you look at your entrepreneurial journey, I think the most, um, recent and defining one is, uh, is Harvard, the company we've built together. Um, and, um, Yeah. Can you take me to the moment where you broke out of this idea, almost working for clients and helping them with implementing technologies uh, on the internet to starting this big tech company yourself and what inspired you for that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I I built out this, um, yeah, this company that built digital platforms for other companies and those, those assignments, they started really small. They got bigger. So you start to work for bigger and bigger. Um, yeah. Enterprises, and what you see then is that on one hand it becomes more interesting because the challenges get bigger, and to be honest, the invoices also get bigger. So financially, it's 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 a nice journey, but you've got to do with a lot of politic politics and a lot of ideas that you have, where you really believe there are great ideas. You start implementing it, and for a reason completely outside of your control, uh, it just stops, and that can be pretty frustrating. Um, so at a certain moment in time, I uh, I had this. Yeah, innovation and development agency in Amsterdam. I also started a software development agency in Colombo, so in in Sri Lanka. So I had the resources to to build and, um, yeah, let's say the financial independency to build the things that I wanted to build instead of the things that people paid me for to build. And, yeah, that's exciting because then you have all these great ideas um, and you can just execute on them. So I started with a few initiatives. Uh, Some of them are still there. And, and big fun uh, some of them yeah. failed horribly and uh, yeah one of them grew out to be uh, to be harvard where uh, yeah. where we met
0: yes so so can you explain what harvard uh is doing and uh what was the first um idea around the platform that was built um yeah harvard
1: started with a really in the beginning like a really broad thesis what, what we saw was that um, in a lot of industries, data was used to make better, better decisions. So we did a lot of online marketing campaigns. And those campaigns, they were yeah, not controlled by human beings, but by data and insights that derived from data. And um, I worked for a company named Randstad, this big big temp agency. They do much more, but they're also a temp agency. And what you saw is that in the world of HR, and especially in the world of recruitment, most decisions were still made based on, based on gut feeling and not on data. And, yeah, this this broad topic, this, this broad insight, led to the uh, development of some pilot POCs, like pilot products, to see is it possible in the different decisions that are made by HR to use data instead of gut feeling. And I think for any... HR leader that listens to this podcast. This is completely normal right now. And nobody doubts that this is the way to do it. Uh, but back then, that was pretty innovative. And that's that's how Harvard started.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, I know. I remember that <laughs> when we pitched the first um, bigger companies, I remember um, the absolute disbelief that this could ever work. Um, uh, and it's actually pretty fun to realize that today that's, it almost feels like natural and normal that everyone is doing that. Yeah. Uh, so Hyper was a digital hiring platform. Um, I would say uh, it was a little bit of, um, um, when we met actually, um, I already knew you quite a lot, quite some time, but when I met you, uh, there was still like a lot of work to do. Um, and can you describe, if you look at that journey, um, is there anything that you took with you from your experiences working for a big company like World Online, when you started building this tech venture that in the end uh, turned out to be a pretty big global company?
1: In all honesty, not so much. I think uh, what you remember is, the, is, is the, good, the good things that happen when you work, because there are also benefits when you work for, for, for a bigger company. I think one of the things that are really new after leaving World Online is no more politics. So whatever you do, no hidden agendas, no uh, no hidden politics in the background. But then all like Harvard was a SaaS company. World Online was an internet service provider. It happened in completely different eras. They say that, I don't know, in, in, in the world of technology, things go one, one year, covers seven years of normal life. So there was 70 years apart between the two uh, endeavors. Um, so straightforward answer, not so much.
0: Yeah, and um, so with Car- with Harvard, we um, started working on that company. And um, I think when we all went remote in 2020, um, a lot of things changed in our business. And it's also really defined the company we're currently building, Carve, which we will talk about later. Um, but I'm curious uh, to a- ask you that question um, since we're talking about things that are impacting and changing the workplace. Um, we were building that company together. We had offices on multiple continents, um, and out of nothing, we all started working remote. Um, how did you experience that?
1: It was really strange back then because it happened overnight, well, not really overnight, but you had let's say two weeks, <laughs> two weeks notice period uh, mm-hmm. from being a company where there was a party in our office every Friday. Uh, we did a lot of stuff together with the with the different teams. I even know that on the day, Um, Or three days before we went into lockdown, there was still a ski trip planned. So people were literally ready to go into the bus when, yeah, I think the the story around COVID COVID evolved. So it was really strange to go from a life where you go to the office every day and have a great time with people to a life where you are, in my case, in the bedroom of one of the children and sitting behind a laptop eight hours, nine hours or ten hours a day.
0: And did it change your perception of building a company? Um,
1: over time, over time. I think in the beginning, there was also this, it's not really adrenaline, but it feels like it, right? In the beginning, like, okay, yeah. let's make this happen. So everybody was still connected, yeah. and you were in those yeah. Zoom calls every day. And those morning calls, the water cooler calls, or I don't even know how we call those calls, they actually worked because everybody was yeah. excited because, okay, there were, there were horrible times, but at the same time, everybody was motivated to make it happen. And then over time, when working remote became normal, um, that energy went out a little bit. And I think yeah. what we learned over, I think we all had to learn this over time, is that you need to replace that natural energy that you had from the beginning with something else. And yeah. I think we figured it out pretty well in the end. So in the end, it changed my perception. Because pre-COVID, if you would have asked me, can you build a remote company? I would have said no maybe some people can do it. Like there's always somebody that can do the magical thing, but in general, it's not possible right after COVID. I thought it's easy. Then I really had a stage where I thought, Hey, it's not going to work. But when you then start to, yeah, adjust the way you work with people and adjust your, your operating model. Yeah. Then it turns out that it's, that it's pretty
0: possible. Yeah. Yeah. I fully agree. I, um, in the the company, um, uh, was, um, acquired by one of our competitors in in the U S. Um, and that also freed up our hands to do something new. But I remember just going into, um, like filling you in on the, on the part that you just described and also taking your experience there. I remember when, when COVID happened and we all went remote, I remember you being pretty um, pessimistic and very careful with what markets would do back then probably also referring to your past experience um, and i remember that we went in a pretty conservative mode in the end actually we it turned out to be a very positive spin for the business but i think that's a natural maybe your match natural tendency when things like that happen
1: i uh i like uh i like it sounds great, but I like, if there was a small crisis, I really like it. It also gives me a lot of energy. And, and yeah. N- yeah, I know back then we really made a plan. Like we said, these are the stages we assume the company will, will go through and let's act one stage ahead on what we yeah. assume that will happen. Um, and yeah, and you're right. In the end, it turned out pretty, uh, pretty okay.
0: Yeah. And um, so after doing th- early 2021, the acquisition was, um, uh, did happen and, we both had our hands free to do new things. And I think it's pretty cool to see that that period in time, the COVID, I would say years, um, inspired you and me uh, to really start something new. Um, it doesn't happen that often that so many things change in the workplace in such a, such a short amount of time. And that's part of Quite some new ideas to to make an impact again on the workplace like we did with the company before i think one of the things that was really um yeah defining was the breakthrough the ai breakthrough as they call it um and um i just want to take you to that moment um when you when openai uh, released davinci 3 in november last year and you with all your experience uh, when what went through your mind when you saw that for the first time? Uh, not possible. <laughs>
1: <laughs> now you're. I. I mean, with Harvard, we were working a lot with data. Um, so I've been monitoring the field of AI. Yeah, pretty pretty closed and the different different use cases of AI. I think. Yeah, you refer now to OpenAI, the release of DaVinci, So that's this this lang- large language model uh, that's behind ChatGPT. I think everybody knows it by now. And um, what really hit me was, the, was that it was based on a technology that was not new. So it's not that they invented something new. They took something or a methodology that they were using for a long time, and they just yeah, did it on a super scale, and it gave results that at least I didn't expect, but I think no one really expected, including the team that was actually building this model so that was a pretty uh um yeah so it it was mind-blowing and at the same time well that's what when you're an entrepreneur you get so many ideas like what could this mean for people in every part of their life
0: so maybe to before we jump into that can you describe or explain what a large language model is we hear it every day and i'm still surprised or not surprised it's just everyone wants to talk about it but how does it actually work so Let's just use, for, for the sake of uh, simpleness, let's use open AIs. Um, uh, let's use chat GPT that yeah. most people know. How does it actually work?
1: There is, of course, a lot of stuff that's really complicated under the hood, um, but if, let's try to really, really simplify it, because else you know me, and I can talk for hours about uh, about yeah. this topic.
0: You can, you can.
1: There is a certain logic in our language. So, if I tell you um, something like the apple does not fall far from the tree. tree. Um, so there is logic between words, and people can really relate to that. If I tell you that apple and pear, for example, two words, but they are close to each other, and apple and computer are also close to each other, but pear and computer are not so close to each other. Now imagine you have this board where you can put all those words And the only thing you say is, the closer those words are together, the more likely they are connected to each other. So if I see a string of words that says the apple does not fall far from, then it's probably close to something called the tree. Well, I think everybody can, if you look at a Scrabble board, everybody can put words there and, and your mind can still understand it. And then there are some words that you can't really fit on the board. So you can Maybe they, they, they float in the sky, right? Because, um, yeah, Apple is close to peer. Tree is close to both of them. So where do you put it? Well, let's fly it in the sky. So we have these three dimensions. What OpenAI did was have this big machine that puts every word and every sentence that's out there in the world, so billions of items, give them a location in this space. And now it becomes a little bit harder to comprehend. They don't do that on a Scrabble board or a chessboard with two dimensions. They don't do that in a space with three dimensions. They add over 1,500 of additional dimensions to it. And yeah, we're humans. We have a problem. We can only think in three dimensions. Some people can add time to it. And then it's four dimensions. But that's about it. What they did, they add so many dimensions that every word, every sentence got a unique position. And well, when you use ChatGPT and you prompt something, to put it really simple, you ask a question: Where does the apple fall? Then the only thing ChatGPT does is look. Okay, that sentence that you just typed: Where does it float in this big space that we built? And which word is closest to it? And if the closest word is tree, it will say tree. And we think, wow, it's it's intelligent. It it's understands it. But In the end, it's not not really intelligence. It's just really, really extremely good in guessing what's the next word. So, yeah, we call it artificial intelligence. People that work with it call it a language model uh, because it's a word guesser. It doesn't understand anything. It doesn't understand concepts. It doesn't understand life, death, pain. It doesn't know anything. It just can guess what's the next word. And it can do this. So extremely well that we perceive it as
0: as intelligence. Yeah, that's a good one because it's, uh, inte- it's it is not real intelligence. Um, we might think it is, and that may, might also be a little bit scary. Um, but what's the difference with? Because we also played around with the other uh, DaVinci models before. Um, and what's the huge difference between those? Uh, like the new model in uh, released last year. It's back then three. It's it's bigger, so it has it has basically more.
1: Um, it had it, it it got more training. It's yeah. Why is it Why is a ten year old child smarter than a five year old? It's not that they are really smarter. They just got more training, so they put yeah. more words into it and and trained it. Um, yeah, to get better in guessing words.
0: Yeah. So in the, so we worked together for quite some time, and I know you're very AI. You're skeptical about the appliance of AI. Uh, obviously, we have. Um, AI is not new, uh, but you know, if you look at um, Tesla Autopilot, it's pretty uh, good example of advanced AI, but especially in the startup world, we also had a lot of pitch decks that we saw where you almost always filter out the AI vaporware because it was just a buzzword to get your company Absolutely. some hype or something. Yeah. Um, but why is this then a breakthrough? Because we can definitely say this is something fundamental.
1: Um, because it's it's a completely trained model, so you don't have to do anything with AI yourself to work with it. And yeah. what a lot of startups are saying and back then said is like, we create our own model. The reality is you need so much calculation power and so much data in order to get a model trained to a level where it's actually useful um, that a lot of startups that say, hey, we use AI, they have some heuristic formula and they played around a little bit. I always say you say AI, but it's actually one big Excel sheet where you played around with. Yeah. But you're right. uh, Investors really liked it. So uh, it was a good way to uh, to raise money. The difference right now is that OpenAI puts AI, yeah, almost like an off the shelf product in the hands of entrepreneurs that can build on top of it. So you can yep. yeah, build on uh, on something instead of starting from, uh, from zero.
0: Yeah. And, um, so there's a lot of discussion about, um, if these large language models should be open source, um, could you explain what that means and could you also explain what your opinion is about it?
1: Um, well, first of all, there are now open source models and personally I think because the output of this AI is so overwhelming, I have to correct myself, the output of this language model is so overwhelming, people think it's kind of magic. Um, it feels like magic, but the reality is that there are multiple companies building those models right now. There are multiple open source projects building those models right now. So I think, yeah, like the first airplane, if you see the first airplane flying, you say, wow, Right now, if you see an airplane, it doesn't even you don't even look into the skies anymore. Same with this language models. The first time you the first one OpenAI developing it, it was mind-blowing. There will be many companies offering language models, including open source solutions. So I think it's not a topic anymore. It will be open source, there will be closed environments, and it will be available.
0: Yeah. And were you surprised by how how quick and fast it actually was released and that it was this good? Because I believe We, for a long time, thought that we had to copy the neural networks of our own human brains, maybe because we are pretty, we put ourselves in the center of everything to actually make this happen, uh, but it turned out to not be that. Um, Were you surprised by that?
1: I never thought, and it's really hard to grasp your head around it, that this perceived intelligence is hidden in the words that we use to train the machines. So... Um, I think you're right. People always assumed that you had to copy yourself in order to get something that you perceive as intelligence. Maybe like a lot of inventors were copying birds in order to fly and that there is an alternative methodology that achieves the same thing, but based on a completely different ground.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I think and the the breakthrough probably is that um we can now use this as businesses because i do believe that if you look at how quick i mean 28th of november i thought it was released and look in the month of december how many ai startups popped up and how many already are already disappeared by the way but um the how fast the application of that was can you describe why this went so fast
1: Oh yeah, that was, I think in the beginning it was just hype based. People were really overwhelmed by the output of it, and they start to build really simple interfaces on top of it, just like when the iPhone. Well, that went a little bit slower, but when you got the iPhone, people start to build apps. Yeah. Um, remember how many ICOs we had in the blockchain industries? So there is this big opportunism that this is the next big thing. Let's build something on top of it. So I think that's what you mean. We had thousands of plugins and, and, and yeah. apps and websites just connecting yeah. to OpenAI uh, to be released. I think most of them they are already gone.
0: Yeah, and also we 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 spoke about this quite often. Where what probably the difference is with the iPhone when iPhone Apple released, um, for example, the App Store, um, is that the full infrastructure for. To let AI thrive and go really fast now is already there. And for compare it with an iPhone, yeah. with Apple, the I've, i mean, not many people had iPhones when they re- as we compare it to today, when they released the App Store. So cycle was quite was so much longer than what we see now because the full infrastructure yeah. is already there.
1: Apps, app, and that's also for me the first time that I see that there is a fundamental innovation that doesn't need groundwork. So for streaming yeah. media, you needed broadband internet. That, for apps, you need distribution of mobile phones. So always when there was an innovation, you needed an, a different fundament to work on it. The good thing on those innovations was that humans had time to catch up. And I think right now, and that's really interesting, the only thing that holds back adoption of AI in the workplace, for example, are humans. The, the, the quest out there is not, can we, get, can we sell mobile phones or can we create broadband? Now, can we create something that we can put in the hand of a user that they can start working with it? Because everything else is already there.
0: Yeah. And I, I, I just feel the. that's also why I want to ask you about to explain what it actually is, because I feel there are so many doom scenarios already, but without really knowing and understanding what it actually is. And I've seen that, like, it's pretty. Cr- Maybe we all we have a tendency as humans to do that in general to create a doom scenario out of everything because it actually might feel like it's the simplest solution to understand it. Oh, it's bad, or uh, it will destroy us. Um, what's your take on that?
1: Um, you're completely right with with that last part. So. Um, as humanity, was, we survive because of fear. So if something new happens, because we are afraid, we run away. And that's why the tiger didn't eat us. And that's why we're st- we're having this conversation right now. And I think if you look at history, um, when the first movies came out more than 100 years ago, people were scared. When they start printing books 500 years ago, people were scared. The radio, television, it always gave these. the internet even. Eh? And, and uh, a lot of religious groups didn't accept the internet because it was also part of this doom story storyline same with ai people don't understand it i mean if they understand that it's actually one big scrabble machine maybe they won't be so afraid but they don't understand it and then doom scenarios sell obviously pretty well and that's i think yeah. sometimes we send each other those news articles um where, where people predict the end of humanity because a computer is capable of guessing words really well yeah, I think it sells.
0: Yeah, but but I, I do think that, sure, it's one big Scrabble machine, but if we, which is a nice one, by the way, we're going to use that more often. Um, but I do think that there isn't a problem that if it's if we cannot separate the Scrabble machine from a real person, and with, I mean, communication being so digital, and, I mean, almost device to device these days, I think that's where the, all the fear comes from, right? So how do we distinguish the real humans from this Scrabble machine?
1: Yes, and that fear, that's a rightful, rightful fear. And I think it's not a fear that will lead to the end of humanity, but that is a fear for something that can really hurt people. Um, yep. Those examples of, of people of copying voices of other people, and then you know, you think you have your son on the phone, but actually it's a scammer. I think that's the real danger of AI and that's something where, yeah, unfortunately as, as always the government need to catch up and, yeah. and come up with laws and regulations and until that is there, it's yeah, basically up to us or people that work in the, in the technology, um, to have your own ethical boundaries in what you do and what you don't to prevent, yeah. um, yeah, basically negative destruction by, by the tools that we're building.
0: Yeah. I think that's a, I think that's a real good point because we just talked about how um, with the full infrastructure being there uh, for this AI breakthrough to just take off without any guardrails almost, usually you have the time. Well, think about going back to the Apple and the App Store environment. We had the time to catch up as the government's uh, rules and regulations had time to catch up because it wasn't an overnight thing. Um, but that's not the case right now. I mean, if you look at today, it's just a green field. You can almost do whatever you want. Um, and I think that is a concerning element also for businesses to adopt it. Um, but yeah, that's that's probably that's uh, our responsibility indeed.
1: And people will get smarter and understand better what it is. So I'm, I'm always positive. So we will we will go to a phase where things will go wrong. Uh, as in any cycle of innovation, but we will yep. get out of it and it will be better.
0: Yeah. Cool. Well, let's um, let's talk about Carve, um, our new company, because we just talked about Harvard, the, the journey we ended uh, in, in the middle of the pandemic, where we experienced um, uh, this re- building a remote, what it is to build and run a remote company. Um, and right when we started Carve, um, we started around with the older models of GP of OpenAI. And a few months in the journey, um, this AI breakthrough came. I think it's so rare if you look back in time that you have two such fundamental moments that, I mean, I believe really changed the way we work in the future and it inspired us to build Carve. And can you explain me um, or we can have a conversation about this since it's our business. what actually inspired you and why you really believe in Carve as a, as a as your next journey?
1: I think you just described two trends. and One of them we experienced ourselves when the company went remote. I think that change is here to last. And we have many discussions about it, that companies now work in completely different ways than they did five years ago. But the tools they use and operating, like the, the models they operate by, they are still the same. Um yeah. And that will change. And I, I love that crossroad of where something is changing in the real world, and there is this, yeah, basically this blue ocean for new technology that will facilitate that change. Yeah. The second thing, what's happening now in, in the world of AI, that opens so we have this blue ocean of, of opportunities, and then we have this revolution in AI that gives tools in our hands um yeah, to build stuff that was like unimaginable uh, three years ago. And that combination, yeah, that, that, is, that combination is extremely exciting. It's also overwhelming and it can be scary. But yeah, for me and I think also for you, it's it's mostly exciting.
0: Yeah. So when we started Carve, our plan was um, uh, with all these companies going remote, um, 250% more meetings uh, in uh, remote and distributed teams um, and in some companies, 50, 40, 50% of the time, some companies even more of the time goes to meetings. And we already sensed together, hey, um, AI will probably be capable pretty quickly to maybe function as a, uh, to have the role to can that can grasp that information for you. And with all that information that is now hidden in companies, turn that into a goldmine, distribute it. Um, and uh, maybe even act it, let it act for you. Um, and when we started playing around um, uh, in November, the model of AI, i oh, sorry, DaVinci 3 was released. But if you then look at today, um, what have you learned in the last nine months, I would say, now playing around with this, um, with obviously Carve uh, as your new journey um, um, about the appliance of AI?
1: Um, that we are in a complete new reality, When you look at how computers and humans will interact, uh, what the role of the computer or the platform or the software, that's that's called computer for now, what the role of the computer is and what the role of the human is. And I think when yeah, was released for the general public for the first time, they had this feeling of, hey, I do something, I ask something, and there's intelligence on the other side of the screen instead of a predictable thing that gives errors or output. Um, And in the last, yeah, let's say since then, in, in, in the last nine months, that evolved into like when you work with it on a daily basis and when you have to design software and not even software, if you have to design systems around it, that created a complete new reality where this perceived intelligence can also be used to program itself, to give instructions to itself. So. The other side of the line is not a dumb machine, machine anymore that you give structured input and you get output. No, it's a thing that, yeah, I have to correct myself. It's not intelligence, but it's able to adapt and to deal with all the unstructured behavior of a human being. And that yeah. new paradigm, those new options, especially, again, how to turn all these options into something that people can use tomorrow, that new paradigm, that's for me the most intriguing thing. And on that paradigm, I learned, a ton, and I learn yeah. still every day.
0: Yeah, so so we are launching Carve, and and with Carve we have um, we launch it as a trusted workmate, literally an extension of yourself that's stepping into all the conversations um, that are in your company that you're having yourself, but also maybe even into the data sources that are running in your own company. And you just call that big Scrabble machine. And what we try to do with Carve is to not use the general internet only. For that Scrabble machine, but to really do that on actual company data and information, this conversation that you're having yourself or your colleagues have, and then this what we call workmate, which is an extension of yourself almost in those digital in the digital world of your own business, can literally do work for you or inform you without you even being there, just to do your job better. Um if you look at that domain, do you feel that this is a utopia or are, what do you believe is, is possible there?
1: Um, it will be a completely new reality for pe- people working with those tools and it will feel like utopia in the beginning. It's, yep. yeah. I, I, I had a discussion with my wife, wife around this topic and, and what it would mean and I compared it like we, we did a little... F- bit of construction in a house. And yeah, I know you're not a typical handyman, <laughs> but hey. you, you have this machine, it's called a drill and it makes a hole in your wall. And it takes around five seconds to, to drill a hole. A hundred years ago, you know, you had this manual thing and it would take you half a day to make the same hole. I think if you would go back in time a hundred years and somebody that was drilling holes all day you give from this machine, it would feel magical. And I think the same will happen will happen to users that or people that will use Carve or, or other really good AI tools for the first time, it will feel like, whoa, a complete yeah. new reality, and it will yeah be a, absolutely a game changer.
0: Yeah, I mean, and and we're now doing this together, and I think it's, I have to say, we're now ready to go to launch almost. We're testing the, the platform already for almost five months with users. It's great to see all the results, and But I have to say this is probably, this is a super difficult entrepreneurial journey um, because the unknowns are crazy. I think we have to, we don't even know what's going to happen in two months from now. New models can be released, um, laws, regulations. It almost feels, it is super exciting because you, you and I are super passionate about it, but don't you think building Carve is a super, super hard journey? Um, if you look at all the things that are impacting the journey of this business, it's the hardest one because every, what you say every, and, uh, and like everything is in flux.
1: Everything is moving. Like the, I, I know that like I think in January we had discussions like if we would build this, this would be a game changer, like a, a component for Carve. And then we thought, oh, it will take us a few months. And then a week later, the open source community built it. Like. Technology is moving faster than ever before. You have to deal with the technology, which creates a complete new reality. Because really, until November last year, in the last 30 years, designing software, designing system, obviously things got better and faster and bloody bloody. but it fundamentally didn't change. So that is completely changing. And then I, th- I don't know why, but that you and me, we picked in also this, yeah, this domain of, of the remote and the hybrid workforce, which is also changing rapidly. Uh, yeah. so it makes it extremely challenging but also also interesting. and I prefer that. I mean yeah. there if if you don't like the fast pace, then there are a thousand other companies that you can build that will go a lot slower and a lot more predictable. Um, but this is more fun.
0: yeah I think what we know I think that's also important to 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 um, to see if you look at the, we, we don't we don't chase like features and functionalities and, and technology technology possible, I would say, options, but we, in the end, we chase problems. And the problems that we're seeing with CARV are are pretty fundamental. How people spend their time, especially in distributed team today, um, if you look at how much time goes to things that are just not necessary anymore because of the technical revolutions, if you look at the amount of meetings people attend, but also that's something that I'm super passionate about is absolute disconnectivity i experienced myself when i uh, when we were building harvard uh, remotely we had a super like thriving culture and it was so intense to see how we 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 really didn't have to do correct me if wrong we didn't have to do a town hall to let to let people be engaged to the company because of the immense interaction super office centric and i experienced myself the disconnectivity between in, between people and teams, um, if you're building remotely, that is something that can really be solved with AI and distribu- distribution of information. And I think that's where we see a problem that we can really solve with Garv. There are many unknowns, what we do know, and I think that's also what is actually forcing us for, and propelling us forward, is that the fusion of technology, in this case, AI and humans, that is something that will really happen in the next uh, few years to come. Um, And that will go pretty fast, in my opinion. What's your take on that?
1: If we and our peer companies do a good job, then it will go extremely fast, definitely. And I think that's what we saw each other this morning. And that's what we talk about a lot, right? Like, How can we put this in in the hand of users that are not coders, that are not, you know, they just want to do their job. So how can we turn it into a drill where everybody knows how to use it? And if yeah. we do that well, there is nothing that will hold it back
0: yeah yeah well it's a good it's a good one i i think we we should have that we should continue the conversation and talk about the real adoption of AI in the workplace um I think that's a topic that is also um I think what we always want is how to put it tangibly in pe- into people's hands because people can understand AI, they can understand use cases, but then you still need to have it implemented in your business in a secure way, uh, in a way that's actually can be adopted by a larger group. Um, and it's actually funny, um, uh, McKinsey released a paper last uh, last week where they explained that uh, the adoption of generative AI um, uh, in companies is making waves and it's actually accelerating already, which also shows that companies are willing, really willing to adopt new technologies. Um, and research also says, also by McKinsey, that this acceleration in the next 24 months will continue. Um, how do you see that? Yeah, and I
1: think they also wrote something about who drives this in organizations, right? Yeah, same, yeah. Um and that is that that is the middle management. And yeah. Yeah, for me that makes a lot of sense. Because they will see the benefits immediately. So because and that's fun about AI. A, AI and, and well let's talk about CARF, the tool we're building. It really helps the individual user, it helps the workforce. So they will carry this product. And I think that's also, when you talk about adoption, that's different by AI that is implemented in organizations three, four months ago, or three, four years ago, where it was often the board that wanted or wanted that accepted AI because it drove the bottom line, but it didn't improve the lives of the individual contributors. And I think that's that's really different right now.
0: And And can you give an example of a real, like, concrete use case where... Which each company could like implement today that would immediately change, or ex- that people can ex- immediately experience the benefit of of generative AI.
1: Yeah, that's such a hard, but also such a simple question because don't, you don't even need to look at Carve. Just go to ChatGPT, and uh, in your daily job, there are so many times where you can ask ChatGPT to lend you a hand to write yep. an email, to summarize something. To Brain to do creative stuff with you, so it's so easy to try it. I think it becomes harder when you want to do that in a structural way, and that's yeah. And when you talk about adoption, it's not about, um, you know, trying something, experience magic, be blown away, and then continue, go on with your life, but do that in a way that helps you every day,
0: yeah. Yeah, I think we, we all we discuss this a lot, and Obviously, Carve, we start with the um, the domain of meetings because that's such a unstructured um, source of information in company. A meeting is vaporware the moment it ends, and you have to physically attend to get the information or a colleague needs to write notes in Notion and then that information from meetings lands in other systems and then you need to catch up on that. But if you look at the whole infrastructure we implemented in companies to distribute information, to me that is... That to me was the biggest enlightening moment enlightening moment when I saw the possibilities of um, of AI on ins- information gathering and distribution. Absolutely. I saw, oh my God. Like if I look at if I look at Harvard, like look at look, look or look at a random customer success team. A customer success manager is spending 30-40% of their time only on admin tasks to get information out of conversations with clients into CRM systems so that it's actually that other people can read it and that it's safely stored somewhere. Uh, But we can come up with multiple other cases. For me, that is one of the most enlightening moments, um, how it can change the way we distribute information. And I would say, isn't that like the first real application um, of AI in the workplace?
1: The essence is that you, and you just mentioned it, that you take something that's unstructured and transform it into something that's structured. And that was in... The world of applications always the task of a human. The human yeah. could look at unstructured data like a meeting, like this podcast, and then take notes or do something to put it into a system. And the and, and and now the system can take over and can do that in a split second and can do that 24 hours a day. So any unstructured information or data that's hidden in meetings in an organization, yeah, is accessible for anyone around the world anytime, and that's yeah yeah
0: a game changer. So, if you look at the adoption of, uh, I think the challenge will be the adoption, um, not the possibilities that we have, because the adoption, uh, the adoption curve is always a lot longer than what's probably possible. Um, do you see, um, do you see similarities with the earlier Harvard journey, where the possibilities back then of big data and machine learning, advanced analytics? were at the moment when we launched the platform and we got it into people's hands, the possibilities were already there, but companies were just not eating it. And today it's just normal. Everyone eats it and almost feels strange if you don't eat it. Don't you see, do you see the same challenge with the adoption of AI solutions, um, um, in the workplace?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We, and I think in the beginning of this uh, conversation, we talked about the fear that people have and, um, yeah that can a, that can be a driver not to use it, so I think what needs to happen is that people understand the benefits and that it's actionable that it's something that you can try tomorrow without the risk of losing anything or the risk that something uh, might go wrong and I think yeah by those small incremental steps there will be there will be adoption and it will go fast,
0: yeah. I think if you realize, I feel all the time, like if you've seen it once and, and you see how it works, then you're sold. So I give you an example. I had a, I had a call last Friday with a big accounting firm um, for our accounting. Well, your favorite topic too. And they, we did this call and I let Carve in the call. And I said to the guys, we're going to have this conversation and Carve will write your proposal after this conversation. And they said, well, that's not possible. So I am the partner. We have a team here who listens into this call. And after this call, they will write you a proposal and you will receive it next week. And I said, well, let's run this experiment. So we had this 30-minute call, which was an onboarding call about me. They asked me some questions about my situation. And literally, after the call ended, I went into Carve and I, I, I asked the system, hey, based on this call, can you summarize the call for me? And... Can you, for me as a customer, already write a proposal? And I did that. It came out really well. And literally five minutes after the call, I emailed the proposal to the partner uh, of that accounting firm. And I received something back like, I almost can't believe this. So that is, I think, the reality we're living yeah. in today.
1: People are blown away.
0: People it's, are blown yeah. away.
1: I, I, I it proves two things one people are really blown away when they see it for the first time and it also proves that it's not real intelligence because no smart system would voluntarily stay in a call with an accountant right that's
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you can be more present in the meeting yes <laughs> <laughs> no these these real world examples will i think we need to really push and explain that to people to really let them understand what AI is, because even
1: I had a similar thing, um, but different. We obviously with scarf, we have people involved in marketing. I'm not in their calls. And I remember we were building POCs on, on carf And one of those POCs sent me a summary of a meeting of a different department. I was not part of. And I really liked it. The fact that, like, Hey, wow, these guys are working on this release plan and, yeah, being in the loop without having to ask this or reading long emails, it was, yeah, I love yeah.
0: it. Yeah. Or just going into a, a, a sprint, uh, sorry, a daily stand up meeting of the engineering team, and you can just, me as a non engineer, can ask, can you explain in layman's terms what it's actually discussed and how it can impact my go to market team? And it will help me to understand that. That extension of yourself, that workmate thing, is something if you've seen it and experienced it it's gonna it's gonna change your perception of how you work actually that's it what is. i really believe in thanks for this conversation i have one last question so we began this podcast with your dad talking he was uh in the 70s already right he was a computer scientist uh specialist maybe they call it what was the re- the role he, what was the name i
1: don't even know what the role was it was i think even 15 years before that i think oh. it was it
0: was in the 60s already wow So, but, and your dad, how old is he now? He is 88. 88, but I know him. He's still very keen of mind. Um, and is he following all this? Absolutely. Yeah. And how does he look at this? Um, it's interesting. So I show
1: him uh, like his eyes are not too good anymore, but I ask him then questions. Um, and I let ChatGPT answer it just, just to give him the feel of what, what systems and platforms can do right now. And, um, yeah, he's 88, so he has seen a lot in the last, uh, let's say, 70 years of his life. And he explains to me that in his lifetime it happened so often that things that are impossible, like if you're in in the 50s or in the 40s, like color television, impossible, 10 channels on one TV, impossible, and that in the end it became possible again and again and again. And so I think he's excited he's not blown away anymore on SH because he knows that the impossible (laughs) will always become possible, but it's fun. It's definitely fun to keep him in the loop.
0: Yeah. Okay. Barent. Um, I do want to thank you for this conversation and probably it is not the last time on this podcast because, um, in this field of AI in the workplace, we can have a session almost every few months to just explain and talk about the things that are happening. Um, and we don't. We don't know. That's a cool thing. Mm-hmm. And we don't pretend that we know. That's a disclaimer for this uh, for this podcast. So uh, thanks for joining us today. And um, yeah, you, anything you want to say? Where can no. we follow you?
1: See, see <laughs> you in a bit. LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram.
0: Everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Baron. thanks. See you. Bye-bye.